So, this is uh, the last uh, talk in this uh, series of uh, un-teachings that I'm offering. So far I've been zeroing in on specific un-teachings. One is the un-teaching of the permanence of things, which is of course the same as the teaching of impermanence, if you wish. Um, the second was the unteaching of the clinging to things, to people, to thoughts, to ideas. My third talk last uh, week was about unlearning our sense of self. Or as the Buddha says, the teaching, the teaching of anatta, the teaching of no self. Today, I'm going to zero in on dualism, on the unteaching of dualism. And so, the title of today's talk appropriately is "Unlearning Dualism." What, what do I mean by that? I mean that it's important to put an end to our habitual way of seeing the world in terms of polarities, of black and white, of friend and enemy, good and bad me and the other. This is no small task, you know. We are just like, like soldiers embedded in the middle of a war. I remember an image that has stayed with me for years an image that Christopher shared with us in a retreat. His father fought in Second World War. Or maybe, was it first? Well, in a World War. Here he was, a British soldier on the continent, fighting the Germans. He's sitting in this bunker, aiming his rifle at a German soldier just before he pulled the trigger the soldier who was knocking at a door in a house the door opens and a woman comes out and, and greets him and just in that fraction of a second this British soldier had the sense not to pull the trigger. But if you're in a war, that's what you do. See a soldier. That's, of course, an extreme of the polarity project. But anyway, we are in so many ways immersed in that that we don't even take notice of it. 
did this project get started? That is his living in duality got started. My thought is that as I referred earlier in earlier talks to the work of Jean Piaget on child development and as he pointed out it's uh, after half a year maybe at age uh, 8 to 12 months that infants begin to notice the difference between themselves and others. Between, begin to have a sense of me separate from others. Clearly that's a very likely point where this whole thing gets going. I've also in the previous talks talked about the the, the teaching or unteaching of the Buddha of dependent arising. Basically, dependent arising sequence is the sequence by which we fabricate the self. And it starts with the mind making contact with an object, a person, a thought, whatever. And from that contact comes a choice of I like it, I don't like it. Or I'm indifferent to it. And from that comes a tendency to cling. I referred to that in one talk. And from the clinging comes the I. I who clings. Today I want to focus on the very first step of dependent arising, which is that polarity between I like, I don't like. It's pleasant or unpleasant. The Buddha, of course, pointed out the three choices, pleasant, unpleasant, or in between. But he also made the point that if it's in between, there isn't much for us to do there. We go for the pleasant, we cling for that. The unpleasant, we push away. The polarity project starts from there. It's by having this strong want or displeasure that we can then go on to fabricate the eye. Some of you may remember in the last talk I, I brought a balloon and I blew up a balloon with the face. Just a caricature of the puffing up of the eye. We can these days see a very parallel project, polarity project again, in the public arena with uh, our president, with Mr. Bush, who invites us 
to split the world into friends and enemies. He didn't invent it. Probably some of his handlers did. He, you know, it's a very old thing, of course. It's been tried successfully by many um, systems where power is an essential ingredient. And so he says, if you're not with us, you're against us. No other alternative. And with that, he strengthens his grip on power. But I must say, Mr. Bush and the likes of him have no monopoly on this. But just remembering at the other end of the political spectrum the story that uh, Raquel, my partner who is sitting here told me when she was very young in her early teens in fact and also very rebellious of course as teenagers tend to be she joined the communist youth movement in Argentina, in Córdoba. And uh, well, she stayed there for a few years. And then one day, somebody discovered that she wasn't doing things properly. That she wasn't really seeing the polarities right. So they had a little trial in the middle of the night were in a public space in Cordova she was accused by a fellow members of this group of three very horrendous things one that she studied painting with a man who was not a communist two that her boyfriend wasn't a communist, that was serious. And three, that she read uh, books that didn't fit that category either. So, and in fact, all the point I'm trying to make is that sectarianism is nobody's monopoly. So how how do we create these categories? Let me read from something I myself wrote about the Polarity Project. Have you noticed how our minds tend to get turned on exclusively by the polar ends of the spectrum of possibilities? When watching sports, I find my mind eager to embrace one side or the other. In the end, it is myself who wins or loses. When playing a game, say, of tennis or poker, keeping scores becomes paramount. All that matters is the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. When watching the news, 
I often catch myself keeping score as well. Did my side, my viewpoint, come out ahead? In the course of my daily activities, I tend to assign brownie points to myself. Did I do well in that phone call to my daughter, in fact? <laughs> or in that encounter? Dito with meditation practice. Was that a, a good sit? Is my breath up to snuff? Sorry about the pun. In a, in a book uh, called Transforming Our Terror, uh, Christopher, this is my teacher, lists uh, a whole lot of other alternatives. He says, in everyday life, we seem to experience a whole range of dualities. Birth and death, health and sickness, coming and going, presence and absence, good and evil, here and there, us and them, you and me, friend and enemy, love and hate. And then he adds, uh, what the Buddha zeroed in on calling these the eight worldly conditions, that is, four pairs of conditions. And I should say, I, I don't know a thing about Pali, but it, uh, the, the translation I would prefer is the eight worldly conditionings. And they are gain and loss. We're conditioned to seek gain or to bemoan loss. Okay. Gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And Christopher adds, We have become so involved in dualities that we honestly believe that clinging to one side of the duality and resisting the other side constitutes what life is all about. Think about it for a moment. Our intimate relationships easily get colored by the polarity project. So that we, at times we alternately are attracted and repelled by the same person. Oblivious that these feelings have nothing to do with the other person, but they are our projection. Why? Because we, our ego, has a tremendous stake in that polarity project. So, 
how do we do we unlearn this how to get do we get out of dualism first and foremost we need to be willing to let go to loosen the grip of the eye of the me of the mind from the grip of the my side my click for side click take a back seat to my only when the eye subsides not that disappears but subsides stop being so central to our lives only then can we begin to appreciate the rewards of dropping the polarity project and the very basic reward is in making room for the truth truth to repeat once again only becomes available possible when we stop taking sides for the sake of the eye those of you who are in the legal profession do that know that very well when the ju- judge sends uh, the jury off to deliberate on the merits of a case the instructions are very specific evaluate the facts presented to you without letting your predilections your predispositions or what i've been call- calling here your chosen polarities get in the way clearly you cannot evaluate anything if you start already from your conclusion going a little deeper the truth we need to discover is not only the truth out there the objective truth but but also we have to learn about ourselves as well we need to understand the pull of dualities it's not a question of pretending to push them aside but we we need to examine how the impactors in order to be able to release ourselves from them this is from a, a book that i found bewitching called small boat great mountain by ajan amaro which by the way you can get for free from somewhere He tells a story about another uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Sumedho both went to Thailand many years ago and spent a lot of time in the monastery of Ajahn Chah. And here's a story that Ajahn Amaro tells about Ajahn Sumedho. He says, Sometimes Ajahn Chah would invite 
him, Sumedo, to meet visitors to the monastery. One day, a group of attractive young women came to that Pong, that is a monastery. I believe there were students from a local nursing college in Ubon Ratachani. A few do- dozen of them were sitting there, all arranged very res- respectfully in the beautiful turquoise and white uniforms. Ajahn Chah gave them a Dharma talk and chatted with the teachers, professors, and so on. Ajahn Sumedho sat next to him for the several hours that this session went on. Sitting in the company of several dozen attractive young women at such close quarters was not something that happened often to the young Biko Sumedo. Ajahn Chah liked to test his disciples every so often to see where they were at. So after the party from the college had gone, Ajahn Chah turned around and asked, So, Sumedo, how do you feel? What did that do to your mind? Bear in mind here that the whole relationship to sexuality is much more simple and straightforward in Southeast Asia. And Ajahn Sumedo said, he said something in, in time, but I won't try to pronounce it. In translate, I like, but I do not want. Ajahn Chah was very pleased with this response. In fact, he was so impressed by it that at every Dharma talk for the next two or three weeks, he referred to it. This is the essential practice of the Dharma. There is the acknowledgement that this is attractive, that this is beautiful. But there is also the choice. Do I really want it? Do I have to possess it? Do I need to chase after it? No, I don't have to. Without fear, repression or aversion, there is a turning away. If Ajahn Sumedho had snarled, I sat there turning them all into corpses. Then Ajahn Chah might have thought, okay, very good, but it sounds like he's probably an aversion type, frightened of sexual attraction or of the realm of sex. He's doing his duty as a monk, trying to restrain the passions, but perhaps not aware of the deeper dharma. Or if he had said, it was all I could do to hold myself down on the floor, as in chat would have thought, okay, duly noted, is the greedy type, we need to navigate that carefully as time goes by. But Ajahn Chah saw that Ajahn Sumedha had really found the middle. This is what it is. It is very attractive, beautiful and delicious, but I don't want to possess it. I'm not pushing this away, but I don't need to own it either. It's the way it is.
It's the way it is. The scriptures over and over again remind us to see things as they are. It's not that they are calling for greater objectivity, for scientific rigor, but for an understanding of the process by which we arrive at our version of the truth and for embracing the whole complexity of things. In this way, truth stop being just one more thing I need to grasp to get a hold of as a fodder for the eye and becomes instead an instrument for freedom. In the meticulous way of um, scriptures, the Buddha refers this way to the eight worldly conditions that I mentioned before. Monks. These eight worldly conditions spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. Which eight? Gain, loss, status, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. This, slight different translations, doesn't matter. These are the eight worldly conditions that spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. Gain arises from an ordinary, uninstructed person. He doesn't reflect. Gain has arisen for me. It is in constant, stressful, and subject to change. He doesn't discern as it actually is. And then the Buddha goes on to refer in the same terms to laws, to status, to disgrace, to censure, to praise, to pleasure, to pain. The mind of this ordinary person, his mind, remains consumed with the gain, with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. His mind remains consumed with the pain. He welcomes the arisen gain and rebels against the arisen loss. He welcomes the arisen status and rebels against the arisen disgrace and so on and so forth. And he is thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling. Then he is not released from birth, aging or death, from sorrows, lamentation, pains, distress or despair. He is not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So all this is for the ordinary person. Now, what about the well-instructed disciple? The well-instructed disciple, when gain arises for him, he reflects, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. Likewise with loss, it is 
in constant stressful and subject, subject to change and, and so on. Status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. And so his mind doesn't remain consumed with the gain, with the loss, with the status, etc., etc. He doesn't welcome their recent gain or rebel against their recent loss. He doesn't welcome their recent status or rebel against their recent disgrace, etc., etc. And thus he abandons welcoming and rebelling. And he is released from birth, aging, and death, from sorrows lamentations, pains, distress and despair. He is released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. This is the difference. This is the distinction. This is the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the ordinary uninstructed person. You know, it's makes his point forcefully. Another way of saying that, for the well-instructed disciple, the dualities have lost the reason for being, the motivation, the appeal, as the I has become irrelevant, has moved out of the way. And in its place we begin to get a taste of a truly unfathomable sense of freedom. It's a freedom that by its very nature cannot be pursued or if we do we get caught again in the Freedom versus non-freedom polarities. But that indeed comes to visit us, summons us from somewhere. That's a kernel of my talk, but I'd like to add a very important footnote to that. Because all this talk advocating, recommending non-duality has a catch. Maybe you cut it already. Let me, let me start with an example on a, on a very personal note. You know, Raquel and me have the weirdest conversations, really. And one of those conversations 
could go like this. One of us saying, Hey, are we friends or enemies? And the other saying, Enemies, of course, in the most loving voice. Or perhaps saying, Friends of enemy or enemies, what's the difference? I, I cannot put this in words, you know, because it's uh, something that happens and that. It, it, it's significant. We, we fall into a state of non-duality about something where we have, like any couple, a history of dualities, of course. But the duality gets discombobulated, disarmed. And we are witnesses to that. That's what the conversation is about, of course. The language is irrelevant. What happens is the feeling that goes with that. So, the footnote comes now, going back to the subject of the talk is that in all this peroration about dropping duality, of, about non-duality, we could create a new duality between duality and non-duality. <laughs> so easily, if we, if we just go automatically treating this stuff in the habitual terms there we are we fall into the trap again teaching and unteaching another duality learning and unlearning another duality Mind you, the Buddha was very well aware of this trap. He's often sort of praised, argued in favor of emptiness, right? You're familiar with that. And yet, at some point, he had to proclaim, watch out. Because after all, he said, in the Heart Sutra, I'm not using exactly his words, but exactly his words were, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. And it was, it was so disappointing for me, after I had been reading all this stuff and convinced how wonderful emptiness is, 
then he sends me back to the kindergarten again. But there's a tremendous wisdom in that. It's the same thing that happens to Raquel and me when we say friend and enemy is the same thing. When all is unlearned, when we have dropped the reason to fabricate dualities, then when the clinging ceases then we can go back to where it all started and it really the non-duality of everything including duality begins to Truly ring true. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.